Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. That's the future. And th- that vision is what I think will encourage the lo- like our generation and younger generations to pursue their dreams in a way that has no barriers to entry. When they can source liquidity and interest from the public who are then incentivized to spread the word about the things that they care about. And this mission, like you should be able to go into a coffee shop that you like, order a coffee, and at the same time you order the coffee, you should be able to invest in the company if you love their coffee. Absolutely. And then tell your friends about the coffee shop on the corner that you're really excited about. This does a couple of things. Number one, it helps the redistribution of wealth because a lot of these investment opportunities are only accessible to ultra high net worth individuals. So now you, you level the playing field. You give everyone the opportunity to invest and you create transparent deal flow for any company. It's, it's pretty incredible, right? So that's part one. Part two, it encourages this, this new reservation of spending in consumer culture where maybe instead of buying the extra drink for 18 bucks at the bar, you save that money because you want to invest in the bar. Wow. All right, Look Up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. As always, starting off with a huge thank you to all of you who continue to listen along, following along with this journey of exploration into all of the exciting uh, trends and ideas and builders and shakers and shapers uh, that I get to bring on this show. Uh, And I've been having a great time, so going to keep it going. Uh, This episode is a special one. I've got a good friend, Justin Blau, also known as Blau or 3LAU, 3LAU. He is a DJ, a producer, and an independent recording artist. And he also now is a digital collectible artist, um, which is part of the reason why I brought Justin on this show. He is a rarity in the music industry. He's a successful recording artist uh, whose main goal is not fame, but helping others. He was raised in New York and Las Vegas. His parents emphasized the importance of charitable work. Uh, He studied finance undergraduate and was originally going to pursue a career in business before he decided to make music. And he used that knowledge of business to realize that it was more important to stay an independent artist. And we dive into why it's been so valuable to him to remain independent, how he balances the creative side of his mind with the business-oriented side of his mind. And some of the challenges that artists who are 100% focused on the creative side don't uh, recognize until it's too late in the music industry with middlemen taking 88%, as Rolling Stone estimates uh, in this episode, of the recording revenue from artists uh, who sign with agencies and publishers and others. In a world where you have mass distribution on the internet and you can raise capital to create your art through your community of fans, it seems like those models are antiquated and going to go away. And an industry that 
Justin and I really built our connection in is the cryptocurrency space uh, because there are applications of blockchain and cryptocurrency that we both believed and continue to believe will help disintermediate the music industry. Uh, one platform that Justin is an advisor to that I've been tracking for some time is called Audius, and they are essentially a decentralized SoundCloud. Uh, Justin created a, a festival business called Our Music Festival, or OMF, in 2017, probably a few years too early, in which fans could actually own the festival that they would participate in over time. And these are new models that cryptocurrency can build. But specifically in this episode, we focus on a concept called non-fungible tokens or NFTs. And Justin explains what NFTs are, but essentially NFTs are a way for digital collectibles uh, to be owned by individuals. So one of the problems with digital art is that it's ubiquitous. It seems like anybody could just download it and Historically, you couldn't prove ownership of that art. But today, with cryptocurrency technology, you can actually prove scarcity of a digital asset. And so for certain artworks that Justin has been creating, which merge kind of digital video with some of his music, you can prove that you own one of maybe five or 10 of those that have ever been and will ever be created. And there's some cool things you can do with these assets like program recurring revenue into them. So every time a new sale happens, the artist or the artist's trust continues to get compensated. Uh, and so we dive into this a ton after speaking about the problem with the music industry. And if any of my listeners are creatives or artists, um, podcast hosts, musicians, this is a really interesting opportunity set for you to explore. So we did this episode for you and I hope that you enjoy it. That was a long intro from me and there's a lot more ground to cover. So I'll let Justin take it from here. Enjoy. Welcome, Justin. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Mark. We've known each other for a very long time, and our paths have crossed in so many ways. I know it's so exciting. I, I love I love all the synchronicities around around friendships and how they develop. It's great. Um, I you know you just mentioned something that I find interesting, which is the the potential um, push and pull between your creative desires and your creative capacity as an artist. And then your kind of ambitions as a business person um, would love for you to unpack that a little bit more and how you, how you manage that. Yeah, no, I think that's something that I frequently, it's, it's a struggle and it's also, it's a valuable struggle where I have this side of my brain that wants to create all the time and doesn't want to think about anything but the creation and the creative process itself. And on the other hand, I have to think, you know, as any artist should think, you know, how do we get this? art that we create to a lot of people um, or to some people that really care about it. So ultimately, as much as I do make the art for myself, I do want to share it with people. That That is the and The idea of distribution is a very business-oriented framework of thinking. So I kind of have to put different hats on at different stages in the creative process. But, you know, I've always said, I was on, uh, you know, you're on, you're on Clubhouse as well. Yeah. And I was talking to Eric Weinstein yesterday about music and math and how I apply a lot of my right brain to my left left brain when it comes to the creative process. And I kind of do the same when I put my marketing hat on, my business hat on, and I, I try to apply a lot of my left brain to my right brain to come up with maybe more innovative ideas 
on distribution. Like, how do I get people excited about something without selling it to them, right? Without hardcore, say, you know, without them feeling like it's being marketed to them. That's the most powerful form of marketing. One that's more in, inceptive. I don't even think that's word, but that one that incepts the thoughts in in the in the consumer, customer, um, user, listener, right? So. I'm constantly at odds with both of those parts of my brain all day long, thinking creatively and business-wise about different decisions. And one of the things that I want to improve on for myself in the next 10 years is segmenting those moments of thought where like, I take the time to focus on one or the other and not let them overlap. Because when they overlap, it's kind of paralyzing. I think too much on one side, too much on the other side. These two sides of my brain are kind of battling it out mm. and I don't come to a decision. So I, I'm kind of learning to program my brain to like stick in one area of thought at a time. Otherwise, I, I yeah, like I said, I, I paralyze myself. Yeah, that's super interesting. So you basically you're compartmentalizing the different elements of your person, but also of your of your current you know present work. So at one time you'll probably go in a cave and start recording and, and producing music, and it's like this is my production time, and maybe that's a period of you know multiple weeks or multiple months where you're just 100 honed in on that. And then when that process is done, then you're like, okay, you know, maybe you take a, a break, <laughs> which is super important as well. Well, so that structure that you just outlined is what I strive to achieve, but I haven't been doing that in the past, mm. actually. So it's like in the past, I'm constantly like switching too frequently between both parts of my brain. And I felt that it's probably beneficial for me to do it more as you stated, where I, like you said, compartmentalize these, these moments of work, whether it's creative work or business work. Because I feel like I'll be more efficient if I do it that way. Just did, given the nature of the world right now, it's hard to actually execute on that. Did Eric have any thoughts on that? Did he share? Because I'm curious, like, what is the best? What is the best mental model, and and what actually engages our brain in the most effective way? Like, is it this compartmentalization, or when when we allow kind of the seemingly dichotomous as elements of ourselves to communicate with one another, um, does that actually imp- enhance the creative process? Like potentially your your math business brain. So Eric and I were with the audience about like math in music mm. more specifically, not as much about left brain right brain. Um, okay, the conversation it. kind of turned that way after the fact because I was kind of explaining music mathematically, and then people were talking about in in the, in the clubhouse room. People were talking about how certain frequencies affect the human body and how artists like explore those frequencies and how they can incorporate them. And then at this, and then I kind of came back on and I said, as much as music is mathematical, sometimes you just feel shit. And that mm-hmm. magic happens in that 1% of the time that you just feel something that you stumbled upon accidentally. So you can't really mathematically plan for that moment that happens in the creative process. Well, and, and then I, I, would, I would imagine, and sorry to interrupt, but I, I would imagine, you know, the creative process of producing music versus the creative process of, of performing a live set is extremely different. And that point that you just made when you just feel something, I've always wondered kind of, you know, how much, how important is the audience and the audience reaction when you're, when you're producing, when you're, you know, you're live at a huge festival and there's, you know, tens of thousands of people jumping up and down to your music is, are you reacting and responding to their, to their reactions or have you kind of like established, this is my set they're going to vibe on it. You know, how often are you improvising in that process? Yeah, it's, it depends on the moment. It depends on the show, the improvisation. Mm -hmm. I'm with a big festival. I kind of plan it out, you know, week 
because it's going to be recorded and I have all this new music to play. And then in a club setting, I, I definitely adapt a little bit more. I download things from the internet. I bring them into the set and I do different things. But the best part of you know being able to perform live is being able to test some of the ideas that I've been making at home and seeing how people react. It's one of the weird things with this COVID environment is for the past 10 years, I've always been able to kind of test my stuff out. Um, and now, now it just doesn't quite feel the same on a stream. You know, you can't feel the reaction of a crowd on a stream. And so it's, it's been a little bit weird. It's been good on the one hand, because I've had more creative time than ever before. On the other hand, I don't kind of have this feedback that um, is super important for any artist, I think. Yeah, it's like comedians who travel, who travel and do kind of the small club circuit to, um, you know, to test out material or even I'm thinking about Andre right now, because we are kind of discussing the convergence of, of crypto and, and creative process. And, you know, I test in production. It's almost like a similar concept, like you're, you know, you're, you're testing your stuff while you're out there, while you're out there presenting it, and then you're tweaking it. Um, so it's, it's, it's always an iterative process. Yeah, no, exactly. It is iterative. And so part of that iterative flow is missing for a lot of artists in this environment. Um, but not to, not to kind of like dive into, you know, one of the things that I'm working on right now head on, but it's, it's actually relevant. Um, one of the ways that I found that flow is in digital art, which I've been really focused on lately because the feedback on your art is almost instantaneous as people start bidding on the art you kind of get this immediate sensation of, wow, people really like what I created. Whereas with Spotify and with traditional shows, sometimes you don't have that feeling until you're out there playing or until the numbers are like really big on Spotify. And that could often take like six months. Sometimes you don't really know how it's translating. But with art, you finish it and you put it up on one of these platforms and like all of a sudden people are expressing their interest instantly in a really meaningful big way because they're bidding, right? So it, it, it's an interesting kind of like positive feedback loop that's happening with digital art. And it's, it's actually like good for my psyche, my creative brain to see like such positive feedback on the work that I create in such a short, you know, period of time. Yeah. I want to, I want to definitely go down the digital art route. Um, and I, I think that I, I know that we'll get there and that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on. It's probably actually the main reason we, we wanted to chat because we've been talking a lot about this NFT or non-fungible token craze and digital collectibles and the work that you've done there. I think an interesting place to, to lead with though, as a follow to kind of the conversation about um, left brain, right brain is your decision to stay independent, you know, and how important that has been to your career. And then from there, I have, I think that there's like a, cl a clear path that I see towards, towards the digital art. We can take a step back before we dive in. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, because I studied, you know, to speak to that, um, because I studied finance in, in, in college, like yourself, I've always had this strong sense of maintaining equity in myself. And, you know, the music industry is traditionally set up a lot differently, where uh, record labels act very similar to VCs, except way more predatorially. They'll sign an artist for a deal that takes 80% of the royalties. They'll provide some liquidity up front. And so the purpose of a record label historically is both liquidity so that an artist can you know, have enough money to pursue their dream. And it basically buys time for them to be mm -hmm. creative. And second, distribution, which um, you know, traditionally record labels have big marketing teams and have specific distribution channels to, you know, back in the day it was record stores. Now it's, 
know, then it was iTunes and now it's Spotify. What's changing in that world is that both the liquidity side and the distribution side are kind of all can all be determined on the internet. You know, there's no reason why an artist can't raise capital from their fans. There's no reason why an artist can't get the distribution they want through TikTok, through through great content on Instagram. So, you know, these legacy music systems are starting to lose control. And I was always betting on that in my career. I kind of always saw that coming. Um, that, you know, these promises that these, you know, like I said, legacy businesses created for new artists were probably pretty empty in the long. So growth like hit that like plateau curve a little bit early on. But as this it may either way, going exponential again for my career. So I've maintained equity in most of my music. I own a majority of my master recording rights and, and a majority of my publishing rights. And um, that gives me creative control to be able to release whatever I want, whenever I want to, without having to ask anyone questions. And that freedom is so important for me creatively. Um, because, you know, as this story goes, you know, artists have a one, one hit wonder and then their labels block them from releasing other stuff that they want to release it becomes really, you know, a, a terrible experience for a creative. So I've kind of always seen that coming given my background in finance and, you know, wanted to control that aspect of my career. How important has that been moving forward towards a world where artist revenue from, you know, obviously from album sales has come down massively, but even digital streaming revenue, you know, our mutual friend, Dre, RAC kind of, I, I see him often post on Twitter, the average revenue that an artist is going to collect from a certain number of Spotify streams. And it's. I, so I actually agree and disagree with that narrative. So on the one hand, there's this narrative in public space that says artists don't make money from streams. It's not really true. The narrative should be artists don't make money on streams because they've signed bad record deals. That's, that's the reality. Now that, mm. that's not to say that these platforms shouldn't pay artists more. They should. However, from five years ago in 2015, when I was making $10,000 a year from royalties, that era of time, no one was paying for a Spotify membership and no one was buying music on iTunes. They were finding it for free. So a streaming platform in and of itself is actually a way better circumstance than people getting music for free or very few people buying it on iTunes. So between 2015 and now, because I've owned all my own master rights, because I've maintained that equity, um, the payout growth has, is you know, 60, 70 X on an annual basis, what it was in 2015. So in that sense, it's like, I actually see a lot of value in streaming services for artists that do maintain their rights. Looking at the grand spectrum of how much money they generate, do I think artists should take up a larger portion of the pool? Absolutely. But for those who have maintained their rights, um, Spotify's actually worked wonders for us who we weren't making any money before. And all of a sudden, because people are willing to pay $9 a month to access everything, instead of trying to steal only a couple things for free, you know, Spotify just made it easier for someone to access the world of music for a very cheap, affordable enough price. More of that spending should go to the artists for sure. But like coming from zero, that's already something pretty good. So there is this kind of misconception out there that artists don't get yeah. paid for streaming services. We do. They just need to make more, if that makes sense. It's definitely a better world than it was five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. That that does make sense. Um, so it really comes down to kind of again the the, the middlemen, 
um, the the labels, the agencies, um, the publishers. In some instances, maybe some some managers that are not acting in the best interest of the artist, uh, who are who are taking the lion's share of the revenue away from the creator, in exchange for distribution, in exchange for you know, quote unquote distribution, and some of the other things that you mentioned, which the, these services they're not necessarily providing. And then we're moving to a world where touring, because of the rise of festivals over the last decade, and that's something I want to chat with you about as well. Um, you know, touring and kind of 360 revenue, so merch and that direct connection to the fan, um, ticket sales, you know, percentage of ticket sales, whatever, has has become a larger percentage of, of the artist's take. And at least over the last five years, it's felt like a renaissance for um, for talent. I mean, you know, at first festivals were, I think I have some background noise, apologize for that, but I think at first festivals were, you know, the model was let's package all of the artists under one umbrella so that we can pay them less and then we can ex- expand our margins. And then I think artists and agencies got wise to that and started charging a festival premium. And so over time, net net, I think artists have started to make a lot more from live from touring. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. Touring made up a huge portion of my revenue in the past decade and COVID hits and then that goes away. So people are looking for new ways to monetize. Exactly. They realize, oh shit. You know, I'm not really making enough money on the recording side. So that's why there's this narrative of like people being really frustrated about how much the streaming services pay out. That being said, you know, you mentioned something earlier that I just wanted to speak to. The statistic is that that, that Rolling Stone cited in 2018, and I don't know what it is in 2020, but of the $40 billion that the recorded music side of the music business generates, artists only keep 12% and 88% goes to middlemen. That's how big of a discrepancy there is on the recorded music side. The live side is a whole other business. It's, a, it's a, also you know, a $100 billion business. But just on the recorded side, that's a crazy number that artists only walk away with 12%. Like, where is that other money going? Like, who should be getting it? Think about it. It's the artists and the listeners. Why is anyone else involved in 2020? It shouldn't be that way. So yes, when, when Dre talks about it that way, it makes a lot of sense. Like, artists should definitely be picking up a larger portion of the share. That being said, behavior has changed in the consumer and consumers are paying more for the music itself because now they can access all of it for $9 instead of hunting for some free stuff and only buying select stuff. So the overall pot has grown, but the distribution for the artist isn't necessarily fair. And that Did you ever use Napster? I'm just curious. I, of course, Latin Napster, yeah. LimeWire, what CD, all that stuff. I mean, we all came up, like we came up in that time, right? So we, we became accustomed to free music. Like uh, you're a little bit you're a couple years younger, but like, you know, we, we probably similar background, like came up buying CDs, you know, purchasing CDs. And then all of a sudden Napster comes out and you're downloading everything that you possibly can for free. And now as an artist, we see the opposite side. And I think, you know, I agree that live streaming platforms have improved. I think one of the core problems with, um, with the internet today is that the ad based model, um, has created a, a situation where consumers just don't like to pay for anything content. They really don't want to pay for any media, you know, in the same way that we pay for physical goods. Now we're kind of at this, and that's why I, I love crypto. So there's two things that there's two things that you mentioned in there. One is the, is this, this concept of the middlemen taking 88% from the artists in the recording space. Now, when we look at the live space, the venues, 
take a huge portion of the take. Obviously, the promoters, and rightfully so, need to take a huge a portion of the take. I think promoters, having been one for a bit, get they actually are the ones that take on a ton of risk. And that business is, that's a, I think, a pretty awful business to be in unless you get to some kind of scale. Um, but then there's also this whole issue of the ticketing platform taking massive fees and the consumers end up eating, the consumers end up basically eating those fees, but the artists also are just not getting as much dollars as they should because the, the gross cost to the consumer, including fees, is massive. And then the ticketing platforms take secondary fees and bots swoop in, eat up your eat up the ticket purchases, and then resell them on secondary platforms. And the artists, for the most part, don't see any of that revenue, right? So we have an issue now on the recording side where artists aren't getting enough of the pie. We have an issue on the live side where artists aren't getting enough of the pie, but they're getting more because touring and festivals has accelerated. But now all of a sudden COVID hits and- we have this situation where, um, you know, artists are are just not able, uh, specifically recording artists and musicians are not able to monetize their work and and support their their life, um, and so enter, you know, enter crypto, right? Enter. Um, we'll talk about digital collectibles, but the concept of of removing a, a trustless network that can distribute value to the endpoints and all of the stakeholders in the network without a trusted third party like an agency like a publishing company who are um extracting ostensibly more value than they're giving in a world when the consumer is ultimately the distribution platform now because of social media and crypto and now this concept of non-fungible tokens provides a platform for the artist the creator like you to connect directly with your fan and to allow them to participate in your growth and also new ways of monetization. So, you know, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on, on this show is because you're so on top of that. You've been in crypto for the last four years and I want to talk about our music festival and I, I want to talk about some other aspects, maybe even longer. I think maybe you bought Bitcoin well before that. But I also, you know, artists need to know that there's other opportunities for them out there to monetize their creative capacity. Absolutely. Artists need to know. I think that's a great, great kind of place that we can end up at um, at the end of this conversation. We'll, we'll, we'll end up at that point where hopefully artists know what they can be doing now um, to get excited about being creative again in, in this kind of challenging environment. But yeah, so on a, on a personal level, my first exposure to Bitcoin, um, to anything in the cryptocurrency world, was through the Winklevoss twins in 2014. Um, I met them at our mutual friend Adam's festival in uh, Mexico. <laughs> Crazy. And I was opening for Vichy. Um, what a sad story that was. But I was opening for Vichy in Mexico and I met the Winklevoss twins and um, befriended them. And they were kind enough to let me stay at their place in LA during Grammy week one year because um, hotels during Grammy week in LA are crazy expensive. And I was like, oh yeah, I don't think I'm going to go. They're like, oh, just come stay with us. I was like, that's awesome. Yes, thank you. So I was staying with them. They were building Gemini at the time. And that was my first exposure to BTC. Now, obviously, it had been around for a lot longer. It was the first time I really paid attention. And I, and I bought some. Um, a, 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 I guess in today's terms, a significant amount that's still sitting uh, on a hardware wallet now um, that I haven't touched for a really long time. I hope a hardware wallet whose key you, you still know. <laughs> 
<laughs> so many stories of people losing their their private keys from old wallets. Dude, oh my god! Moving that first Bitcoin to the hardware wallet for the first time was like kind of a trip because I like had it on a you know I had the private key on a piece of paper and like it's like I hadn't really had much experience. That was like it's, so it's terrifying. Dude, it is so terrifying. When it's a large amount of money, it's definitely even even with small amounts of money, it's terrifying. Um, so fast forward from 2014 to 17. And the ICO boom was happening and you were already on top of it. And that's kind of when you and I reconnected because, you know, we'd obviously been friends through, through the music space and through other things, through mutual friends, yeah, through Adam. but you had kind of been studying crypto environment for longer than I have, um, you know, in, in 17 and you, know, you gave me a lot of guidance on what was happening in the space. And I just dove head first in the middle of 17 into what was happening in the ICO world. And I, I realized really quickly, you know, we, we had different differing opinions on this. I ended up only investing in like two ICOs. Um, one of which was origin protocol, which is, you know, performing really well now today. Mm -hmm. But, um, I was very skeptical of some of the vaporware that existed, even though there was a lot of money to be made. And I didn't have the expertise like you did at the time to kind of vet some of these projects, and figure out who was serious. And what. well, that's, that's definitely generous. Looking back three years ago now, I, I definitely, you know, there was money to be made and there was a lot of money lost after that as well, because as you mentioned, there was vaporware. And I think we're starting to see now some of those projects um, actually start to launch. There were a number of, you know, scams and, and awful situations. But I do believe that ICOs opened up an innovative model for capital raising um, in particular. And, and now specifically, like with when you bought Bitcoin and moved it to a hardware wallet, Think about all the tools that are, you know, we're, we still are a long way to go from having web to convenience and user experience, but it's so much easier for people to enter the space. And, you know, PayPal, I think, you know, PayPal is like, yeah. So yes, just to, for context, uh, yesterday, PayPal added the ability for um, their 320 million users to purchase uh, crypto assets. Uh, for, they added four assets, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum. Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash, and it's kind of funny when you think about vaporware because I, I would say two of the four of those are are um, questionable ads. But um, but anyway, so going going back to to 2017, you were evaluating a bunch of different projects, and then you actually decided maybe you know there was an interesting opportunity to to launch a project, not necessarily an ICO, but to do it do it right and focus on the live entertainment space. Right. So. Great segue. Um, we, you know, while I wasn't investing in a lot of ICO projects, I still, you know, bought quite a bit of Ethereum and explored the Ethereum space. I was fascinated by how quick transactions could occur back when gas fees were reasonable. Um, they're at least reasonable again now, but as we know, they fall quite often whenever there's a new craze. Um, gas for listeners, gas is the um, gas is essentially what you pay. It's almost like a, a transaction. There's a transaction fee, but it's a transaction fee on top of the transaction fee. So when you send a transaction on the Ethereum network, you need to actually pay gas for the transaction to go through. And that, that payment goes to, um, goes to the miners that are validating the transactions on the network. And, and Mark, if uh, I, might, I may get a uh, phone call here for when my Instacart shopper shows up, I'll have to look at <laughs> in security. But, but for now, that'll, that'll be in a minute. But no getting worries. back to um, Bitcoin and Ethereum for a sec, you know, I was just so fascinated by a couple of things that were like truly game changing for me. Um, and for all you listeners that are, you know, whether you're new to the cryptocurrency space or not, these are kind of the principles that 
guided my perception of value in the space. So number one was permissionless value transfer. We live in a country here in the United States that has a pretty robust banking system. It is relatively easy to open up a bank account. There are usually high fees for low, low balances, overdraft fees, transfer fees. So like that stuff's no good. Um, can't use it on the weekends, which makes absolutely zero sense, right? Um, but at the same time, like most people have access to banking in this country. They can open up a bank account as long as they have like decent standing. Um, that's not the case in like 70% of the world. It's really difficult to even store value, let alone make money. So even the money you've made, the government either prints so much more of it the next day that it's worth half the next day for you if you're working a day job in you know, Venezuela or Jakarta, wherever you might be. Um, so number one, it's difficult to make money. But number two, there's no real good secure place to store the value that you've earned as a human being, the value that you've created for other humans. It's impossible to, to protect that value. And one of the first fascinations that I had with cryptocurrency is it's a global technology. And as time has gone on and as smartphones have evolved, everyone has access to protecting their value for the first time ever. And we have this very US-centric view here because we're lucky to live in a country that's so free and people bash our country all the time these days, especially in the political environment. When you think about it, we live in a really special place where everyone has a shot. Everyone has the ability to create value and to build something here. And that's not the case in other places in the world. And Mark, I know you've traveled a lot of places. You know, I've traveled to a lot of crazy places like Jakarta, like Guatemala, where there, there's no infrastructure, there's no roads, there's no plumbing. Like until you see that, you forget how lucky we are here. So what one of the first, you know, getting back to the point about Bitcoin and Ethereum, banking the unbanked was such a big realization that I had that created this inherent value in, in the crypto infrastructure and in, in the blockchain ecosystem. And that was a big winner for me when I kind of realized that. Um, step two is also is is you know as much as I said banks are great, they're pro- they're not. Um, you know it's nice that we have access to them and they've been very useful in the past you know you know couple decades or you know half century or you know centuries I should say they've been very useful. But with modern technology, the fact that I can't transfer value anywhere else in the world. And it, and it can't be on a weekend, I mean, at, at, at a 24-hour period. I mean, that makes no sense. Why do ACH transfers take days? Why do wire transfers cost money? Um, mm-hmm. You know, for some private clients, like in my case, I don't have to pay for a wire transfer. But like I used to, when I was at Bank of America, I'd pay $30 for every wire transfer. It was a terrible experience. And yeah. then I had this one experience in my life that also like kind of pushed me in the direction of crypto, where I was making an investment in, in a multifamily real estate project, which is what I do You know, outside of music. I do a lot of multifamily real estate stuff. I was making a rather large investment and I went into the bank to send a wire. Well, I actually had to do it with my, I, I invest through a trust. So I have to have, you know, I'm the beneficiary, but I can't actually make direction of funds. So I have to go with my trustee. I go to the bank. We have to like send this wire. And the person, the, there's no person in the branch that has high enough authorization to send this money. I was like, what? Are you, are you kidding? Yeah. And it's, and it's your, and it's your, it's your money, but it's not. It's the bank's money. And it took three days for the person to come back from vacation to authorize the wire, or we would have had to do it in separate wires and it would have been $150 total to, to separate the wires. I was like, I'm not paying 150 bucks. I'll wait three days. But like, that's ridiculous. How is that even a thing? And then, and then with my trustee, you know, I showed him that you could do it on Ethereum, the same amount of money in less than seven minutes. And he was like, Okay, I get this. And, I, and that's when I was like, wow, 
wow, this is nuts, right? Like the fact that I can permissionlessly transfer value anywhere in the world to another human being in a period of, you know, depending on the gas that we explain, you know, you pay could be less than 45 seconds. So that was like the second kind of big value add, like number one, banking the unbanked, number two, really quick value transfer permissionlessly and frictionlessly with low cost. And then the third thing that excited me is applications in the real world, which is where Ethereum and decentralized applications came in. And applications in the real world that cure existing inefficiencies, especially legal ones. So in the music space, there are, you know, every song has lots of agreements that are attached to it. Papered agreements that are signed and stored on in the cloud now, but at the time they were like literally file cabinets of artist agreements with side artists, with producers, with record labels. Yeah, you hear, then, hear horror stories about artists not not receiving checks for years, just complete op- opacity around the agreements, who's getting what flows, who's responsible for paying who, zero transparency. And so like the first thing I thought about with the application of blockchain technology is you upload all the data into a smart contract and then it automatically distributes things the way it should in real time. Like there's no reason why that shouldn't exist. We, you and I both know the tech exists. It's just how do we transition these legacy systems to use it? And so that was really interesting to me. Then the ICO craze happened. There were a lot of these ideas that were probably like way too far-fetched for the time. Then the SEC got involved because of the way that people were raising capital um, was kind of, you know, it was against the grain of everything that the SEC had ever anticipated would ever happen with securities. And there were a lot of people that did some bad things, but there were also a lot of people that tried some good stuff. And I think we were some of those people. Um, yeah. especially because, you know, how, how we kind of, you know, we ended up shutting down the project, but the idea was to basically create a DAO or decentralized autonomous organization out of a music festival. So giving fans the ability to pick a lineup, to pool capital, pick a lineup, and then share in the profits of a physical experience. That now, was our I was idea. disappointed when you shut it down, by the way, I, I thought that it, it had legs. So that was the first idea. And then all of our lawyers said we couldn't do it because it was a security and the cost of doing it would be really high. And there was a lot of risk. And, you know, while we were well capitalized, we weren't well enough to capitalize to, to really execute well, that vision. And I think the legal frameworks, the legal frameworks have evolved since then. So then it was unclear how you could have this kind of like, quote unquote, path to utility for an, a token owned a token owned network. Whereas now, if, if you had some of those functionality already included in the tokens, in the smart contract for the for the quote unquote DAO or the token that was was governing this music festival business, um, there's a, a stronger argument that it is not a security. Right. To today. And now, and now, you know, in 2018, when we were executing on the strategy, there was a lot of fear. So we teamed up with a great company, or I should say, a great network protocol called Stellar Lumens, and worked with their engineering team on building a mobile wallet. And we basically, instead of doing this whole security concept of like giving fans power and picking the lineup and letting them share in the profits, we just did a pilot where we picked the lineup, we sold the tickets, you know, we did not make money on the festival because it was, you know, our first festival and all festivals lose money in their first couple of years. We had eight people in San Francisco with myself, Zed and Big Sean. And we just developed a mobile wallet with Stellar where people could scan QR codes to earn crypto rewards and then spend them on merchandise. And we, and we also did a couple of NFTs at the time that represented like free tickets. So if you downloaded the app before the festival, we picked a couple of people randomly that we sent free tickets to in the form of a QR code that was just an NFT. So it was a pilot for our broader vision that we executed in person. And it was a great success. 
Um, the only reason why I decided to shut it down is because scaling a festival business is expensive, but we really wanted to be a tech company. And then number two, the regulatory environment just wasn't clear enough at the time for us, for me personally, to take on this time risk of putting a lot of effort into something. And then like fast forward to now, the business would have been destroyed even now, you know, given the COVID. Environment. So, um, you know, at the time we did what was best. We shut, we shut down the company and, um, and, I, and I moved on. But at the time I was very upset and Mark, you know, I know you were excited about my vision and we had friends in the music business that were so excited about my vision. It was, it was saddening to me because I had felt like I failed, but over time I realized I was just a little bit too early and yes. that's the value that I got out of that experience is irreplaceable. One thing that I feel about the 2017, 2018 movement is there was this kind of like, let's tokenize everything. Let's tokenize the world philosophy. And there were folks that were genuinely interested in changing the economic model around, around an organization, which essentially is what a protocol or a crypto network is. It's an organization of individuals that don't necessarily know each other, that coordinates their behavior. And there's a lot of interest in that. And there was a lot of interest in that. And I think, you know, there were naturally scams, but I, 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 you know, think about it like the early internet age where there were a ton of kind of pump and dump, you know, micro cap IPOs that weren't doing anything. But then there were other companies in the classic examples like the pets.com example, where they were onto something and it wasn't just this internet scam, but it was just too early. You know, the, the mobile wasn't there, the, the tech wasn't actually developed for them to, to have an impact. And now what's so exciting about today, you know, fast forwarding to now, there's a company that we both are familiar with and you're an advisor to um, that I tried to invest in in 2018, I think, or, you know, yeah, 2018 called Audius, which raised at that time during the ICO boom. You know, and and they they also for security reasons raised via just straight equity and have not yet launched a token. But like here we are. I know I was just gonna say I'm so pumped and I've been using the app is amazing. But here we are and and they've built a decentralized SoundCloud, right? Essentially with a lot of other bells and whistles on top. And we've discussed this. That's a very interesting um, use case here. So so. Well, yeah, we could leave it there, but I also want to go back to where you left your story. Oh, right. I mean, there, so I was just going to, you know, say the relationships that I made, including, you know, the audience, I put my foot in the ring in the, in the crypto in, in the crypto world and met a lot of people that were doing really great things. And those relationships, fast forward two years that I made, even from just trying something, ended up becoming so valuable and connecting me to so many other people in the space that were innovating that had similar goals in in disintermediating entertainment and that was incredible and so in the long run like even though i felt really defeated because i felt that you know no way we cut it was the sec going to let something like this fly fast forward to 2020 paypal's incorporating this stuff it's becoming really powerful and it's making a huge global statement so yeah, I feel I feel like this time it's quite a bit different. Um, there's a better understanding of what's happening. There are a lot more positive actors, and um, and that's going to sustain this growth for a longer period of time and into the future. Um, we both know that the crypto world is still relatively young. It's only it's only a little more than a decade old, and there's so much room for, for it to grow. And I think by the time we're we're in our older years, 
I'm excited for both of us, Mark, you know, as being early adventurers on this journey to be like, yeah, we told you so. <laughs> Memorialized in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, man. No, since the PayPal announcement, um, it's been like, I remember being on TV, like I was on Fox business news in 2018. I saw this video clip of me talking to the, the anchor on TV about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And the guy was like, I wish I knew what you were talking about, but good luck to you. <laughs> I still have that clip. And I feel so proud that I was thinking about it two years ago when now it's literally all the craze. Yeah. And so let's, let's take it there. Let's take it to non-fungible tokens. So for, for the listeners, um, you know, these crypto assets or these cryptocurrencies that we described earlier, Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're fungible, meaning that one Ethereum is one Ethereum. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. You can always trade one for the other. They're essentially, they're essentially for all intents and purposes, the same and represent the same value. A non-fungible token is each token is something different, essentially. They're not one-to-one. They're unique. And the better term, you know, NFTs, I think NFT is the the standard and and there's different um, protocols that guide them, uh, which are a little more technical. But I even think the word NFT will disappear into the ether and we'll just use the words digital collectibles. So you can think about an NFT as a digital collectible. Right, a scarce digital asset. And I think that you know this was very popular first in gaming, where people would have mm-hmm. certain avatars that were rare. People would, you know, the, the rules of the game would enforce a type of digital scarcity on in-game items. And we saw, you know, World of Warcraft Gold and all these things happening in the gaming world that proved the demand for digital scarce assets. What's happening now is something really special. And and tell me, you know, Mark, if you feel that I'm moving to the NFT discussion too quickly. Is there a- no, no, this is the this is the perfect this is this is the moment, man. I'm 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 loving the flow of this combo. I think uh I think this is the time. Yeah. We've got we've gotten from ICOs, you know, we went through the crypto dark ages for two years. Um, and there was a lot of building happening and not a lot publicly going on. And I think we're, you know, strongly entering this kind of new paradigm with the PayPal news that you mentioned, but more specifically and more exciting for me, kind of like, you know, the use cases in in the crypto space, everybody has said for the last three years, speculation is the killer, is the killer app. And that's fine, right? Crypto has a lot to do with trading and finance and leverage and all of those fun concepts that we can spend a lot of time talking about. But I think what's even more exciting is the applicability to other industries. And I think we often lose sight of those narratives. So I'm just like so pumped to see people like you and Dre and, you know, the Audius team really starting to implement and execute on the vision of kind of quote unquote mass adoption. So what is going to bring, you know, other people into the the blockchain and cryptocurrency space that aren't like, you know, necessarily don't care about finance or don't care about, you know, transfer of, of money, but but will be using this for for other reasons. So here we are, digital collectibles, NFTs. Let's go. <laughs> so it starts out with this idea of how we think about art. And, or, and I say art because any kind of collectible is a form of art, even before digital art. You know, 
people would collect Pokemon cards that, by the way, now are going for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if any of you have an older Pokemon card collection and have a holographic Charizard in good condition, they're selling anywhere between 100 and 250 grand um, when they're graded. Oh so shout out. <laughs> if you have, if you, I'm still hunting for my Pokemon collection. It's somewhere in my parents' storage unit, but I had all of them and I cannot wait to find it. Um, yeah, so collectibles have always been kind of this weird in between between equities, more traditional equities, and art. Trading cards, you know, cause figurines, sneakers. There are all these elements of culture that have started to appreciate in value because the manufacturer only makes so many of them. It's natural. It's a supply and demand equation. What's different about the digital world is that it's difficult to enforce that scarcity. You know, when you have a painting of the Mona Lisa, you have only one in person that you can see, but then there's like thousands and probably millions of renditions of the Mona Lisa online that you can go look at. It physically looks the same, but what separates the real one from the other ones is just that it's real. There's no, there's, there's nothing else. They, they're identical, but the artist put all the time into that original Mona Lisa. They put their time and effort and love into that original painting. And there's some value in owning a Picasso or owning one of these artists works because you feel like you supported their artistic vision by owning that piece of work. So this has existed in the art world for centuries where artists would make stuff and people would buy it in the digital world. However, our ideology is quite a bit different. It's how do we spread this, this digital stuff to the most amount of people? Because that's how you can tour. That's how you can build your name. That's how you can monetize. That's been the, the narrative for a very long time. But that hasn't always historically been the narrative. If you go back into you know, the Mozart and Bach days, when they would do performances and recitals, it would be in private wealthy people's homes. It would be a limited and exclusive experience to a few people. It's not like they had speaker systems into festivals or concerts like that, no. So those live experiences were exclusive. Fast forward to today, where art has always kind of been perceived media has been perceived to reach the masses. If you flip that on its head and you say, what if media could either be only accessible by a couple people? That's one, one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is, even though the whole world can see it, one person gets to say that they own it. It's no different than you being able to look up any Picasso or any piece of art on, online. You can look up anything online. You can look at it and it looks the same. Um, in fact, there are many wealthy people that have purchased very expensive art that don't even keep the real ones in their home. They have professional replicators come and create fake versions of the art for their home because they're yeah. afraid that someone might steal it and they put the real ones in the safe. Counterfeiting is a major issue in, in you know, the physical art world as well. It's so hard to tell a good fake from an original. And so provenance, you know, the proof that this is the real one is super, super important. That's exactly what I was getting to. The idea of provenance on the blockchain is so powerful because it expresses this support for an artist from the buyer. My wallet that's associated with my artist alias signs a transaction that sends my art to one other person, or if there's multiple additions to multiple other people. And those are the only tokens that will ever exist that represent that piece of art. And while everyone can see it, those buyers can feel that same feeling of ownership as when they own a physical painting. Now, some people will say, oh, well, like there's something about the physical that's so interesting. But no, it, it, there's actually no difference. Um, and, and we've seen this in a lot of ways. The first, the first way is um, the Instagram verification checkmark. 
Wouldn't everybody want to be verified on Instagram? Yeah, I think so. Everyone wants that verification check mark, but it's only limited to select few people. Why? Because those people are the number one reason why Instagram started the verification check mark is so that consumers and followers would know to follow the real ones from the fraudulent user, from the fraudulent creators. It became a bit of like a, a status, you know, metric in and of itself, which wasn't the original intention, but it wasn't, it was, but it became one. Yeah. And that is the proof in and of itself that there's value to owning a digital collectible because there's value to having an Instagram check mark. And that was the first comp. That's the comp that I tell everyone about um, because it was the first kind of like socially manifested form of digital scarcity. And Instagram physically limits how many exist um, based on whatever they want. Now, why, why shouldn't an artist be able to limit how many digital editions of something exist? We put the same amount of time into the art. I mean, my art director and I, the art that we've been creating, we spent hours and hours and hours of time designing this stuff. It's the same amount of time that an artist puts into a painting. It just manifests in a different way. So once you wrap your head around that concept that showing support for an artist is usually why people own art, then the, 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 the platform becomes limitless for artists of all types to monetize in the digital space. Your That's point. the mission that I'm excited about. I mean, it's super cool. I think one, there's a couple of elements I want to touch on there. You know, one to your point is, you know, this first purchaser of your NFTs, the difference between, you know, we don't, I don't, maybe we do, maybe, you know, people deep in the art world know kind of famous collectors who were the first to purchase a, you know, um, you know, a Michelangelo or, or whatever, but this person, whether it's, you know, publicly named or pseudonymous or tied to just one, you know, Ethereum address on the blockchain will forever, you can forever trace back as long as the Ethereum blockchain continues to exist, the person that purchased this first NFT. And so they're technically like a part of digital art history um, in purchasing those NFTs. The second is, as you said, there is now a direct connection from creator to purchaser um, there are platforms on which people are, are purchasing these assets. So I don't want to necessarily say that you're removing middlemen entirely. Cause I think you, you had, you know, um, I think you did one on super rare. There needs to be, there, there need to be gateways as we, as we kind of enter this space, but down the line, I wouldn't be surprised if there are direct sales. But then, you know, it's also knowing that, that Ethereum address and eventually as crypto addresses also become kind of homes for identity, there's this direct connection that you can have to the artist um, in purchasing these, you know, these NFTs. And I think that's another element of, of crypto for creators that I find to be super cool is the NFTs offer you this, the ability to participate alongside your favorite creator as the value of their work appreciates, uh, but also, you know, community-based tokens and social currencies are another element where, you know, you can, you can participate with your artist in in the growth of their career um, as, as any token that they issue kind of appreciate accrues in value and appreciates in value as they succeed. And that's where, and, and yeah, the social token conversation is, is an interesting one, but um, you know, I, I do tend to think that social tokens are kind of securities um, or, 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 well, not all of them are right. But um, like RIC social token is not a security, but the way that I would want to see a social token manifest is probably a security. And so I'm exploring that right now, and I'm really excited about that right now. Um, but what's interesting about securities laws is that I think they will 
like we've already seen a huge change in the accreditation laws that will take effect in another month. And that's a huge step in the right direction. I think that we will continue to see steps in that direction that will allow for more innovation. Because if you look at some stock prices and you look at their earnings, Tesla, you know, name dropping Tesla here, it's absolutely absurd, right? Their valuation makes has no ties to reality. So there's no reason why, you know, other entities that aren't necessarily publicly traded companies shouldn't be able to let the public accrue value to a community in a similar sense. Yeah. And, and just to, to unpack that, you know, what you're, what you're offering is the potential to actually share in the revenue of royalty fees that you're generating from streaming platforms and potentially other areas. That would make it very clearly a security. And there was a, this applies not only to artists and musicians, but also to athletes. Like Spencer Dinwiddie um, of the New Jersey Nets was, I think, one of the first athletes to say, I want my fans to be able to participate in the fees that I'm generating, the revenue that I'm generating from playing in the NBA. You know, and, and there was a lot of pushback from the NBA on this for him basically to like cut up his contract into little parts and sell it to his fans. But what an incredible opening the space of of opportunity for, you know, for individuals and fans to to get in early. Like I think about so I agree, I think there are security elements and the security one, I, I think about Patreon as an example. If I'm early to a Patreon community, if I'm one of the first in a Patreon community that grows to a million patrons or a hundred thousand patrons even, um, I'm essentially renting my support to the creator on Patreon. You know, but I'm an early supporter. I'm 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 there when the artist needs me the most, or the creator. As a podcast host, I have a Patreon, and I'm like so grateful to the five or so people that currently support the Patreon community. You know, wouldn't it be so cool if they could participate as the Lookup Podcast grows its listener count and starts to generate sponsorship revenue and all that? Why shouldn't they be able to participate in that? And I would love to share in those financial rewards with them. I'm so cool. That's the future. And th- that vision is what I think will encourage the lo- like our generation and younger generations to pursue their dreams in a way that has no barriers to entry. When they can source liquidity and interest from the public who are then incentivized to spread the word about the things that they care about. And this mission, like you should be able to go into a coffee shop that you like, order a coffee, and at the same time you order the coffee, you should be able to invest in the company if you love their coffee. Absolutely. And then tell your friends about the coffee shop on the corner that you're really excited about. This does a couple of things. Number one, it helps the redistribution of wealth because a lot of these investment opportunities are only accessible to ultra high net worth individuals. So now you, you level the playing field. You give everyone the opportunity to invest and you create transparent deal flow for any company. It's, it's pretty incredible, right? So that's part one. Part two it encourages this, this new reservation of spending in consumer culture, where maybe instead of buying the extra drink for 18 bucks at the bar, you save that money because you want to invest in the bar. Wow. What, what, what an interesting kind of like way for a business to grow, right? The business still gets the money either way, but now that customer has more of an incentive to tell other people about the business. Mm-hmm. And it creates this like insane positive feedback loop. So it both goes for businesses and for individual creators like yourself, where like as your podcast grows, you want your early supporters to benefit. And some people will say, oh, that's 
oh, that sounds like a Ponzi scheme. It's literally how every company is ever created. <laughs> like every yeah. company raises capital. They don't make money. They raise more capital. They don't make money. They acquire users. They build this platform. They build value. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden Amazon exists, which changes the way we live in a positive way. Yeah. Like, I'm sitting here talking to you and I can order fucking Red Bull on Instacart and it's going to show up at my door. The amount of time value that I save and being able to do that for my computer is so massive. It's so massive. So mm-hmm. the world is, is constantly transitioning to the digital, you know, to, to, to digital forms of value transfer. And the best way to do it is with cryptocurrency. It's the only way now at this point. It's the way that makes the most sense. It's the technology that works today. And eventually, there may be more centralized platforms like the Fed may create a digital dollar and there may be digital wallets that are associated with your social security number. Like there's all this shit that's going to happen. We're mm-hmm. now finally seeing massive public companies like Square and like PayPal share in the vision that people like you and I have had for the past, you know, in my case, it was six years, but really only three of dedicated vision and in your case, maybe even longer than that. And, and it's really exciting to be a part of that journey. Absolutely. And, and also to just see the, the, the space evolve, um, new creators come in, new developers come in and really just like how much how much innovation is out there? Um, I'm, I just haven't been as excited about you know the blockchain and cryptocurrency space uh, um, as I am today. I think ever. I, I think even since I've been in this space, even since that first moment when I I read the Bitcoin white paper and was like, oh, this makes sense to me. Um, I I've not been this excited, and I think it's for new use cases like this. And part of that excitement for me is like, you know. I think people spend 30 to 40% of their days in virtual worlds or, or online or looking at a screen at this point, and it might even be more. And for Gen, Gen Z, I'm sure it's more. Um, people tend to spend dollars where they put their attention. And so NFTs or digital collectibles or virtual goods, um, you know, this is a market that's projected to be $250 billion in the next five years. Um, folks are, you know, artists, creators, fashion, fashion brands and designers, right? What you're wearing in Fortnite um, is becoming ever more important. Like you go in there with a certain set of skins, you're going to look like a boomer if you don't have the right clothing on. Right. And like, I think about those games are, those games are kind of like, you know, they're centralized. I, I have a view of the world where we have these open metaverses and also where there's this convergence of the physical and real. Um, and I won't get into that too much. If you've listened to this podcast, Ryan Mullins talks about that. Yeah, we can, that's a whole other realm, but it's a fun one. But, but on the, so, so the art that you're creating, I want to, I want to kind of be more specific for the listeners. Like what, what is it? What are these NFTs? I've got 10 minutes here, nine minutes now until, until my next call, but. Oh, it's too bad. Cause I wanted, I also want to ask you about your thoughts on clubhouse. Cause I kind of want to do a little. Let's let, let me, let's talk about the art real quick. I can tell you about it and then I can just direct people to kind of go look at it for themselves. And I think, they'll yeah, end up. let's, let's do it. And then we can talk about clubhouse in the last nine minutes we have here. Um, so the art that I've been working on is their musical ideas that either are not out yet. Um, some of the Blau stuff specific is will be songs that already exist and there'll be like audio visual manifestations of the songs that are already out. But the, you know, I created an alias with my art director. His name is Slime Sunday. I'm Blau. So together we're SSX Blau. And we've started creating audiovisual clips that can be displayed on Samsung TV frames. They can be displayed, you know, on your computer in your collection, however you want to display them. 
And we put hours and hours of time into creating audio reactive content that just is visually encapsulating and takes you into another universe. And of course, like you said, in the VR world, this stuff is going to look amazing. And it's already kind of happening in, in VR worlds like Somnium Space or Somnium Space. I don't know if you've heard of it, mm-hmm. um, but there's, there's incredible potential in this idea of digital art meaning something to someone beyond the clip itself and supporting the artist that puts hours of time into it. I mean, I put weeks of time into some of this music and, and Mike, my art director, spends hours designing these pieces. And they are art pieces. Um, they're available to anybody to look at, but for the one person that wants to own it, they have to buy the NFT. And there are so many people that are buying it. And it's exciting to us because it it's proof that there's value in the work that we do. There's real value. And so we've generated about 78,000 in, in digital art sales, actually almost over 80,000 now in the past um, 36 days, 37 days. So we're just excited to continue to explore it. And you know, for those who want to check it out, you can check out um, SSXblau.art, SSX3LAU.art. And, uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. And for you artists listening, I mean, $76,000 of, of you know, gross revenue, I think. Maybe there's some fees taken out of that. But you know, in, in a two-month period, in a time when you're not touring, right? So, so think about that. It's extremely valuable, man. And, um, and it's exciting. We love making the art. I think that's the other piece of it. We, we genuinely like enjoy spending lots of time on the stuff that we make. So with that, I, um, I just think like even the music element, right? Like to be able to, to own a piece of a song or eventually I, I see all these use cases where there's like puzzle pieces where like, you know, only your super fans can get a piece of a song. And then they're in this community forum by owning the Blau token and they have to piece together the song in order to then create and release that on Audius or something. <laughs> it gamifies the entire music experience. There, there's so much power there and we're all going to explore it. And ultimately we're going to move in the direction that we want, that the fans want to move in. Right. So we're going to see what the fans like to interact with and we're going to create that. Yes. We're very excited for it. So that gives us uh, five minutes to talk about Clubhouse. So, so I've been on Clubhouse for a couple of months now, and I'm like, I'm a Clubhouse skeptic. I've been joining more now, like as more people are coming on and, you know, more friends. Like I see when I get notified whenever you're in a room and I like hop in that room because I think it's often interesting. More crypto, crypto people are coming on there. I just, I have this sense that Clubhouse, people are attracted to Clubhouse because um, it adds nuance to conversation on social media that isn't really readily available when you're just kind of typing uh, asynchronously. And now you're getting to have conversation, which I think is really powerful. So that's a positive about Clubhouse. And then in addition, you feel a stronger connection to the other people on the social platform because it's live and it's audio. And that makes you feel the human on the other side a bit more. But I also feel that it conti- where I see the kind of negative is I feel as more and more people spend time on Clubhouse, it's just another app that takes away from real world connection. And I don't know that it's solving the loneliness problem that I think a lot of people believe social media causes. So those are my gripes. The value that I found in Clubhouse is meeting other like-minded people who I can learn from that I otherwise would never have the opportunity to meet. So it creates this like serendipitous connection with another individual, with their voice, not just with their social profile. Mm. And that voice is just a deeper connection that you can form with someone. And some of the relationships that I made with Clubhouse already, I would consider like really cool friendships, but some of them may even turn into business opportunities. And that's exciting. Um, There are a lot of rooms that are useless and they're kind of waste of time. 
there are a lot of like music rooms where I've joined and like haven't even participated in the conversation. But like when Eric Weinstein and I were talking about math and music yesterday, I, he, I learned so much listening to him speak. Like yeah. whenever, whenever like Andreessen's in a room, he's got some really interesting things to say. And whenever, you know, um, like I was talking to Guster about digital collectibles. I'm like a huge so Guster cool. fan from my youth. Like just like things that are like interactions that you would never have. It's a combination of like chat roulette and like, I'm, I don't know much about Raya, but like, I imagine it's like, it's invite only, right? So it's got like this Raya exclusive element, but it's mainly for intellectuals, though there are some people that slip through the cracks. And then you've also got this, you know, chat roulette element where it's just like random, you know, you can kind of explore what people are talking about wherever they're talking about it. And so Clubhouse is very much like a, it's a personal experience. It's like how you, it does what you want it to do for you. And what I want it to do for me is sometimes I just want to listen. And for me, like listening, I do listen to podcasts, but few. Um, I like the interactivity of like multiple people speaking. I think that's really interesting. So in that sense, I really love Clubhouse. And then in the other sense, yeah, I've just been able to form some really cool friendships, new relationships that, that they don't have to turn into anything. But, you know, there's this, um, I don't even know what her last name is, but there's this girl, Elizabeth AI. Who is Elizabeth AI? I want to meet her. She's been my favorite person. <laughs> She's a boss. Like, and like, I would have never met her if it weren't for Clubhouse, right? And so True. it's fun, man. It's like, it's like, you, you know, I learned so much from listening to her speak. She has this just like vast variety of knowledge about a lot of shit. And she speaks really articulately. So it's like, fuck yeah, I want to be friends with these people. But I agree. Like, you know, it could also be a waste of time. It doesn't cure the loneliness problem. It's just, it's just a new way to, for people to connect. That's probably a little bit deeper than Twitter. And one, one area that one day I think I'd like to discuss about Clubhouse that I've noticed is there's a lot of segregation on Clubhouse. There's, it's very, it's an interesting it's emergent, you know, you kind of get to see the emergent tribalism that can form um, of, of ideas and also of ethnic groups, religious groups. Um, it's, it's a bit disturbing to me to see in action, but maybe that's just the human condition. I agree. I, I, I try to avoid those as well. Um, we've, we've got two minutes. That's it, man. I, I, anything else that you want to share with, share with the listeners before we go? This has been super fun. And you'll have to tell me you know, how this compares to your experience with Pomp because you know, I never get that direct. Somebody is, is doing two podcasts in one day. Pomp's going to be like, yo, bro. <laughs> that conversation will probably be super crypto-centric and less personal. But I enjoy, I enjoy speaking about like, my personal journey. I also enjoy speaking about the potential that I think all of us see in this new technology and how it's going to change everyone's lives. And we, we know it now, and it's only a matter of time for everyone else to figure it out. And it's, uh, you know, I'm honored to have met you through my journey, dude. Like we've talked about a lot of cool stuff and I've learned a lot from you over the years. And it's, uh, it's really exciting. I feel like I've made a nice network of people that, that have a lot to add and that I have a lot to learn from. Likewise, man. And I've learned probably as much from you as well. So I um I appreciate you coming on here. You know, just reached out to you last week about it. Here we are. Uh, super fun. I'm gonna drop in the show notes how people can find you. Um, although I'm sure they already know. And yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about the price of Bitcoin in some WhatsApp group uh, in the next ten minutes or so. Next, yeah, ten minutes. That's usually how it is. <laughs> uh, this is awesome. Thanks so much for having me. All right, peace, brother. Chat soon. All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in.
Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Look Up every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to M-A-R-C at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. 